Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. I am absolutely thrilled to have Meredith Helicard join me this morning for conversations on brave feminine leadership. Welcome, Meredith. Hi, Melissa. Lovely to be with you. It's fantastic to have you here. Uh, I will share a story later about everything Meredith and I have been through to uh, be here today. Um, <laughs> but um, it's it's fabulous to have you on board. Um, you know, Meredith, you have had just the most astonishing um, career um, and success on so many levels in corporate Australia. And, you know, I've often sort of shared with you before that on paper before we met, uh, you were probably reasonably intimidating. And then, you know, I was lucky to meet you and sit and have a coffee and we sort of connected instantly. And I walked away and thought, what a wonderful, warm person Meredith is. So I've sort of hit on every stereotype there as part of your introduction this morning. But um, Meredith, for people who haven't had the chance to meet you before or come across you before, um, tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, um, I'm getting somewhat old, so it's been a long journey now. Um, and I think of my career journey as having three phases. The first one, an executive career, where I ended up having um, three different CEO roles, and then a board career. And then my third career, which I have to say is my absolute uh, most fulfilling and, and joyful career is as a mentor for senior executives and CEOs to help them fulfill their success goals. Fantastic. Um, I want to get into elements of your three phases of career as we talk this morning, because I think there's so many interesting things for people to, to sort of pull out of that. But before I do that, I saw an interview um, that you did probably seven or eight years ago, and um, there was a fabulous question around if you only had one question you could ask, uh, and on the basis of the response you would hire someone, what would that be? And the question was, why are you who you are? And I was dying with curiosity to understand what were you hoping someone would say? What were you looking for? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I think over the years I've realised that it's hugely important to work with people who are self-aware and who have uh, terrific EQ and who are willing to um, have some self-reflection and therefore understand their own uh, triggers, their own ways of being, their own strengths and weaknesses, and also to um, reach out and understand that in the people that they're, they're leading. So um, I 
I like that question because it shouldn't elicit the answer I just gave you before about, well, I did this and then I did this and then I did that, but rather some reflection on, you know, what sort of person are you and, and what are your values and, and, and what, sh what shaped them. So um, that, that was what I was thinking behind, behind that, because otherwise, you know, you run a great risk. I mean, we all make the wrong um, hiring decisions, but I think you lessen the risk if you actually go underneath and understand what are the values that people hold and why do, why do they hold them and how much self-reflection have they actually done? Um, so many things jump out at me on that, that sort of response. You know, firstly, I couldn't agree more. I think hiring is one of the most challenging things that, that you do as a leader. Um, but secondly, it would be really remiss of me not to turn that question back to you, Meredith, and say, <laughs> why, why are you who you are? <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm the product of several um, shapers, I think, um, both parental as we all are and family and then the environment in which we grew up in. And I had, um, I suppose, a powerful combination that, that ended up driving me. One was um, parents who were very, very unhappily married and a father who was sadly an extraordinarily harsh man um, and my older sister copped the worst of his disciplining. As the middle child, therefore, I became the pleaser, the peacemaker, the enthusiast, the joiner, you know, do things, do things well and make people happy and the household will perhaps be a bit, bit smoother. But also, of course, the influence then of my mother, who really drummed into me, never be financially dependent on anyone else. And then the environment. Um, I left school in the um, really in the um, the burgeoning of the second wave of feminism, and. You know, my mother had bought the female eunuch. Um, I joined the women's electoral lobby. Um, and therefore, I was incredibly conscious of the barriers to women. I had a holiday job when I was about 14, where um, the boy next to me was paid $5 more a week, same age. Yeah. <laughs> and why was that? You know, well, because he's a boy and, you know, boys get get more. Um, I grew up in the era where there were separate advertisements for jobs for boys, jobs for girls, men, women. So I think it was wow. inevitable that um, I would become an incredibly strong feminist um, and, and a very, very um, overt Pollyanna, as my husband would call me. Um, I'm, I'm just a real optimist that um, you know to think and see the best in in people and and therefore um i realized that i needed to work um where um it was more about empowering and leading other people and less about being the technical expert in the role that mm. i might have i um I love the reflection about your mother and, you know, it made me think, um, you know, I was, I was blessed with a 
you know, incredible childhood with parents who really set no limits. I could do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents also, well, my parents separated and divorced. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mum saying to me at the time, she never had worked. Well, actually, she did. She worked when, and when she was pregnant with me, she had to leave the workforce because they were the rules. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mum um, yeah. worked in the Air Force. And when my parents separated, Ma, I remember mum saying to me, she had completely lost herself and she came back and trained as an accountant and, you know, created this entire career for herself in her 40s. Oh, and, and you heavily influenced, that. Yeah, heavily influenced me, probably with a similar sort of vein to yourself about don't be dependent on anyone. Make mm. sure that you can, you can support yourself. So, um, you know, if we do then move towards... Um, your your career and your executive career what is it through your career that shaped you in particular and you worked in some very interesting and diverse environments I'd love to know what prompted the moves from those you know one environment to another um well opportunism and I think that's um, that's been the hallmark of my career, I guess, is to take opportunities as they were presented. You know, I did an arts law degree and I thought I was going to do articles and have a career as a lawyer. And then um, I saw a notice on the board at law school for advertisements for the diplomatic service. And I thought that sounded terrific and applied and, you know, then decided, well, I've got this. Why not do that? And, you know, so one thing led to to another um, and. Uh, really, it was just being opportunistic. If I saw something or somebody, you know, knocked on my door about something um, and it looked like I could um, add value and um, be stimulated and fulfilled, then um, I learned over the years to, to take risks. Um, and I can remember when I left the Foreign Service, my mother gave me a card that I still have today. And whilst I don't believe the second part of the ethos, I do believe the first. And it was no guts, no glory. And whilst we don't do what we do for glory, I think um, learning to to back yourself, learning not to be dependent on external validation, leaving an organization where the values of the leaders clash with your own um, I think have all been keys to me and a little bit of the reverse psychology my parents used to use on me of, of oh no she can't do that um, I was um, particularly attracted to sectors where um, it wasn't so common for for women to um, have, have have careers. And so going into those environments, it's something that sort of continues to fascinate me today. We're, we're not seeing the needle move fast enough or as fast as any of us may have hoped um, with regards to females moving into leadership positions. Um, what do you think is sort of the main influence? You know, what, why are we not moving yeah, well, I think I think it it's now become a bigger issue. I think the the first wave of feminine gave us 
initial participation. The second wave um, was all about changing the women and, and having us adapt. The third wave was about changing all the policies in organisations. I now think we're really at a, um, a crux of, of a real barrier, and that is society and these ingrained attitudes. I mean, we've had um, conscious unconscious bias training for years and years and years um and i'm i it goes against the pollyanna in me to become cynical but i do think that um you know when people say is it unconscious bias now or is it conscious bias i am worried that um we're at a barrier where real power sharing is required of men real sharing of the leadership positions and fundamental attitudes in society still haven't changed fast enough there's still uh too many ingrained attitudes about um the role of women and therefore women are still being pushed to try and have it all um you know that uh, men still think of themselves as a generalization as helping the woman as against that the two of them have absolute joint responsibility for you know the the caring um i think there are some structural problems um you know we do need to have tax deductibility for childcare. Mm -hmm. you know child care is a fundamental enabler for workforce participation and you know not having this impacts people at more junior levels or at, in the mass workforce way more than it does of course the the privileged who have reached more senior levels um and i think also still sadly the stereotypes that are put on women the 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 double bind that um you know we all we all labor under of of you know being perceived as too soft or too tough and never just right of having to prove yourself over and over again that you can lead and almost having a choice between being competent or liked you know you can't seem to have both as as the catalyst study on double did you mind. did you feel that um yes yes i i did there were particular um stages of my career where um you know people supposedly giving me friendly helpful advice um you know would um comment vaguely and this is another thing women um have to suffer from these vague descriptions of your style mm -hmm. you know mm, you know your style doesn't quite quite fit um so yeah i think um we've all we've all faced it at various at various times and again that's why i say whilst i think you've got to adapt to an extent and ensure that your leadership style is the right one for that organization you've also got to give up on wanting external validation for feeling good about what you're doing get you about you can get other sorts of external validation namely seeing the business perform wonderfully and the people blossom yes. uh, underneath you but um we have to grow beyond seeking some sort of praise intrinsically about our own leadership and yeah i do hear that 
um, quite often, and I know it's a generalisation to, to, you know, exclusively talk to it with regards to females, but I do hear that females often wait for someone to tap them on the shoulder and, and say, you know, you should have a go at that. You'd be really good at that um, before they actually sort of make a step, make a step. Have you seen that? Is that something that you think is common? I see that so often. Um, again, particularly with women at more junior and middle levels, um, but even some at, at, at senior levels, you know, where, um, you know, the, I don't, it's a confident, it's a confidence issue, but it's also a risk-taking issue. Um, you know, I suppose we're trying to overcome thousands of years of, um, breeding of us to be carers and others and conditioning and so you know should should we take take these risks but um if you don't take risks you you're just going to sit in the in the same place so um you know the old stereotype that a man will say i can do that when they've got three out of the ten characteristics and a woman says i can't when they've got eight out of ten you know is one of those stereotypes that is is born of some basis in fact I think and so um, I think all of us who have reached senior levels it's incumbent on us to help younger women overcome that and and just recognize hey go for it you can do it and that um uh, you know, I think you're an incredible example of that. And I'll move to the work that you do in the mentoring space, um, because I think that is a fantastic example of it. But it's interesting because I often hear, and I have not found it to be the case at all, but I often hear a sort of myth around um, female competitiveness and not supporting each other in the work environment. Um, you know, talk to me about that. Oh, wow. That, that queen bee syndrome that uh, is one of the things that makes me so angry. And, you know, I'm afraid a number of the stereotypes that are used about women in the workplace, um, one finds that they have their origins with males and consciously or unconsciously, it's their way of trying to keep women out of leadership, leadership roles. Um, I think that, um, women have been absolutely incredible in 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 my life in being supportive and i know a lot of women of my generation absolutely you know, will not um, refuse to help um, you know young up-and-coming women i think in the workplace um, i've been in a couple of situations where um, the team has been all female, um, only temporarily, sadly, and it's just been a terrific experience. Now, having said that, of course, there are going to be women as human beings who are not supportive, who who are um, you know set upon their own journey, just as there just as there are men. But I have found no evidence, and I know Catalyst has done a number of studies that show, in reality, no evidence that uh, women, um, you know, pull up the ladder after them and, and you know, don't help. I think there is a psychological uh, issue for women to overcome, which again is is the product of the environment, where if you know that 
the men are never going to let women be even have equal number of positions, whether it's on boards or in a particular leadership team. If you know that um, history has shown that only you know, two out of eight positions are occupied by females, then you're more inclined to feel, yes, there's a limit and am I competing against other women? But yes. I don't see evidence that that results in women somehow playing the sorts of games that men have played for years to, to get to the top. And that sort of um, almost speaks to a sort of scarcity, uh, you know, if you think there's only two and therefore people compete for those spots. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Mm. I, um, I had a couple of um, sort of interesting um, comments along the way in my career. And one was um, someone saying to me at one point in time, Oh, I really, I really enjoy working with you. Um, you've got some very masculine leadership traits, and I really enjoy those. And I knew who they were comparing me to, and so I had a fair idea of the feminine leadership traits that they were alluding to at the point in time. Do you, you know, do you buy into? Because I think male or female, you can have masculine or feminine leadership traits. What do you think is the difference between the two? What do people mean when they say? Well, again, I think what they mean when they say those things is to buy into the stereotypes that have been built up over the years, many of which are based on myth and many of which are designed to um, keep women out of out of leadership roles. So, you know, stereotypically women are supposed to be sort of warm, caring, empathetic, have a more people orientation, you know, and men are, um, you know, driven, visionary, strategic. And again, countless studies by organisations such as Catalyst and Chief Executive Women, you know, show that these stereotypes uh, are not valid in reality. And of course, the best leaders have a, have a combination of those. Um, I, and I think it's only over time that um, people have realized the um, strengths and advantages of incorporating some of those so-called feminine leadership attributes into being a terrific leader so gone are the is that image of the heart driving charismatic yeah um yeah. come on we're storming the mountain sort of a leader um and now uh, people are appreciating that there are many different styles of leadership and there should be because leadership is contextual you know there isn't a model of great leadership there is um a, a leader that is right for a particular organization at a particular time. Meredith, in your sort of third stage career mentoring, um, and I know that you mentor senior executives across top organisations um, within Australia, you know, I'm always fascinated by, are there themes that you see, you know, one, one example that, you know, I've come across uh, with female leaders is, you know, often a brief will be about someone struggling to find their voice. Yeah. Um, you know, are there any sort of common themes that come up? Well, there is one common theme, two common themes, I think, that uh, go across both males and females. Um, one is um, that 
the most talked about issues are people issues. Um, and the second is time management <laughs> and fitting everything in. Um, I think the time one, um, yes, there are still sadly extra dimensions for women who um, you know, have, have families and the unreasonable expectations that are placed on them and their roles you know, outside work. Yeah. Um, but I think the um, the interesting one for me about people is if I again were to make a generalization, um, male leaders are um, often struggling with um, how they bring out the best in their teams, um, and female leaders are often struggling with um, how to be how to be seen by those, those above them um, or um, collaborating with, with um, their, their peers, not because they're not team players, I should add, but mm. just, be, just because of, of various issues of, of yeah, fi finding your voice and being heard and having a comfortable place at the table. But it's the people issues that um, become the strongest barriers to success at senior levels. Okay. And can you tell if you are a good leader? You mean tell yourself? Yes. A good yeah. Leader? Yeah. Um, I think um, you can tell by the success of the people who are working with you and for you. Um, I think if you are seeing people who are engaged, enthusiastic, feel belonging, uh, that they belong, who are achieving fabulous things um, for the business that you're leading or the unit that you're leading or the, the little group that you're leading, then your leadership is working. Um, I don't think it's a matter of, well, I've got these characteristics and therefore I am a good leader. Why aren't they following me? Um, you know, a good leader is one who people want to follow. Simple as that. And, and of course, follow to achieve results. Yeah, not just follow. Not just follow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so, um, right. I, I wanted to ask, you had mentioned to me that you were comfortable to talk about having children and sort of juggling in that space. Um, and I know that that can present a lot of, um, you know, choices for females, I guess, along the way. What was your journey in that regard? Well, it was a journey of almost missing out. Um, that, um, again, because of my age, um, I grew up in an era where we vaguely knew that fertility declined and that there was a time when you could no longer have children. But I was completely unaware of the fact that you really go over a cliff and it declines really rapidly. Mm. And so, and again, because of so many prejudices about women with children and you know a man that leaves early to pick up his kids you know generally gets applauded and Your a woman is labeled as you know not dedicated enough you know I I um put it off and put it off and you know then when my husband and I started trying seriously it was almost too late so I mean we had the great joy of um having our daughter just before I turned 44 um but really you know that that was um, very, very lucky. And therefore, um, I think that we all need to be aware of the fact that um, 
you know, you need to plan it into your lives a bit earlier. And therefore, our society's attitudes to having children just need to keep migrating towards the fact that, you know, enabling uh, children enables our society and to continue that it is a society challenge to ensure that we have affordable childcare mm. and it is a joint responsibility to enable children to be to be brought up it's yeah. I hope we are seeing a shift in those attitudes I saw the other day in the paper so Medibank CEO commenting on uh, parental leave and uh, you know making a statement that ra raising children is not a gendered activity yeah yeah um, and absolutely yeah that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just thought, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And 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 as everyone who does participate in child rearing knows, it's not so much the doing, it's the thinking that's you you want to share. You know, it's not a matter of having a partner that says, How can I help you? Yes. It's, it's having a partner who knows what to do and what is needed and is sufficiently involved that you yeah, both have all the extra stuff. Yeah. yeah, all the extra stuff in here that's going on. So, um, Meredith, I wanted to um, turn now to, you know, a, a stage in your career where you may have felt particularly vulnerable. Uh -huh. um, I think there were two points in my career where I did feel incredibly vulnerable and unusually they were quite late in my, my career. Um, I think in my earlier career, as I say, Pollyanna kept me going, um, you know, that everything will, will work okay. out. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I was able to separate myself from, um, you know, the challenges that might come my way in, in uh, either my own career or my, you know, in the businesses that I was involved in. But I think, uh, you know, both the times that um, I really felt vulnerable were related to the James Hardy saga and, um, you know, the, the attacks on me personally um, and having death threats and, um, you know, being followed relentlessly um, I, and, and reading a picture of me um, that I just didn't recognize. Combine that with being completely exhausted and often without a sort of clear path forward as to how to resolve the, the, the weight of the issues that I was trying to steer the business through. Um, I felt like at one stage that I'd lost my whole identity, um, that this person that was being painted just just wasn't me and therefore who who was I um, I think in in a less um, upsetting way a lot of people face that when they retire completely uh, you know when they've identified um, too strongly with their position in the workplace but for me it was much more fundamental than that you know it was an attack on the um, the values that I that I held dear and you know I I ended up um, feeling feeling suicidal um, and um, fortunately I you know got treatment and and you know <laughs> I'm where I am today but 
um, it, it was a very, a very dark and very difficult period. And one, fortunately, that didn't interfere with me achieving the resolution that we were able to achieve. Um, in fact, you know, it, it, you would have thought that would have brought joy and relief, but, you know, I was spent. And mm. then the second time, second time I felt really vulnerable was, uh, you know, at the end of that when I resigned all my board positions, and I was and had been for quite some time the sole breadwinner, and you know, I, I really understood that pressure and that you know men traditionally have been feeling for a long time of, you know, how can I continue to support my family? Um, I simply didn't know how I was going to continue to earn that earn that living um and of course the joy of mentoring enabled my third career and um yeah I, as I said earlier it's been the most fulfilling part of my the three stages of my career so Pollyanna won out in the end <laughs> it's always good to have that little bit of optimism to kind of pull you through isn't it Meredith um thank you for sharing what you know, are a couple of incredibly vulnerable times in your life. And, uh, you know, I'm sure most people probably can't even imagine the amount of stress that you were under at that point in time. What got you through? So I know you sort of say Pollyanna won out, but what really got you through? Because there will be women out there who, whilst it might not be as extreme as the situation you faced, are certainly feeling the way you are in terms of not sure about their own identity in a really, you know, needing to make a really challenging decision or otherwise. So what got you through? Um, well, of course, there was a whole range of, of um, uh, things that got me through, not the least, of course, family and friends who were just wonderful and, um, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists and, you know, the, 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 team. the formal help. Um, but... Um, I think I'll mention two books that I just thought were exceptional and really, really helped me. Um, one is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, for those that don't know, um, you know, Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and became a um, wonderful psychiatrist. And um, he he wrote about the fact that there's one last human freedom that no one could take away from you. And that's the freedom to choose your own attitude in any given set of circumstances, to, to choose one's own way. And I mean, that seems obvious, but um, it, it did open my eyes to the fact that uh, they can't take that away from me. They cannot take away how I then choose to be. And it helped me. I mean, because I've, I know, I knew that I couldn't label myself as a victim. The real victims were the asbestos victims. You know, it would be very illegitimate of me. And, and therefore, you know, I, I, yeah, I didn't want to be a victim and couldn't be a victim, but, and therefore I chose an attitude, which was to, go deep and, and, and remember who I who actually was. And what helped me go deep was a, um, a book by Joe Simpson called Touching the Void about a, um, a mountain accident where he with 
broken legs and other injuries had, had dropped into this crevasse. And reading his description of the fact that his only option to try and get out was to actually go deeper into the darkness of the crevasse and eventually saw the sunlight. And I just thought that was incredibly affirming that sometimes you just have to keep going forward into the complete unknown in order to find find a way out and find a path forward and you know I remember reading over and over his account of you know only traveling a few meters a day a, a day um, and and not knowing what he is going to find and so I I've really held on to both those lessons um, that I commend to anyone to to read the books and perhaps those lessons might resonate to, to take you through tough times because we're all going to have them we're all going to have these as you say these these knockbacks these wicked problems these um you know the imposter syndrome the self-questioning um and you you can get through them um mostly by remembering it's within you it almost circles back to one of the questions uh, that I stole from you at the beginning around why are you who you are? Um, you know, another, you know, incredible sort of part of your journey as well. Meredith, I know that, you know, people will watch this and they will, you know, may have come across you before in various sort of arenas. And I'm sure a lot of people would be thinking, I could never do what she does. I could never be Meredith. What do you say to that? Uh, I say, hopefully you won't be some aspects of me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, career-wise, um, you know, it's naive to say anybody can do it because part of us all being successful is having, um, you know, the ambition, the drive, the passion, the resilience, um, you know, some of those characteristics which you know, aren't, aren't all inherent. They're the product of, of the environment you grow up in and the career experiences you have. But I think it's important for people to realise that um, none of us who appear to be successful are without a, a backstory, without, you know, huge flaws, um, you know, huge... Uh, things that barriers that we need to overcome and um the the way to find that success is to um as as i think i said earlier um try not to seek external validation obviously you need external validation or somebody won't give you the promotion or the job but um you know build up who you are and be willing to take take risks I think, you know, I often say to young people, you know, put up your hand for projects, even if you think you can't do them. You know, if somebody's, there's a project going that looks like it could be at uh, a growth juncture for you, then then go for it. Um, yeah. You know, go oh, yeah. for promotions, you know, um, because I think we can all surprise ourselves um, as to what we what we can achieve and and also don't be too hard on yourself that's the other thing you know somehow I think we've still got thousands of years of you know if I'm good and I'm perfect in everything I do it'll be recognized um 
that's not always the secret. It's being in the midst and and having having your voice that can um, you know really count. Your gorgeous daughter is in the workforce now. What do you wish for her journey? Oh wow, um, I think she's going to. Um, struggle the same way I did to find the a, a passionate direction um, and in fact I've got her a book for Christmas about um, how uh, the world needs generalists <laughs> and um, you know obviously my career shows that you know I didn't have a passion for one particular particular sector um, and I think she will be somebody who will find a path um and i just say don't try and find it too early um she'll roll her eyes and say oh mom you always talk about optionality and i have i've said you know don't close doors keep your options open you know work incredibly hard at the job you've got but don't get a closed mind and think well well this is it you know, keep your eyes open. Um, she's not going to have her dream of being a saxophone player in a jazz band, just as I didn't get my dream of being a dancer with the Australian ballet. Um, so when you have a passion that talent doesn't match, um, you know, find new passions. And, and um, you know, that's it sound, it's so trite to say you know I want you to be happy because happy happiness isn't an end in itself it's a byproduct of of um you know choosing a path that that um where you can make a difference and that's really i think you know make a difference in the world would be my advice to her and growing you know yeah. keep, keep growing very good very good point melissa very yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent Meredith, the last question and the question I'm asking everybody is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like now and does it need to change? Yeah. You know, this is, a, you did forewarn me of this question and I've actually struggled mightily to find an answer. And only last night I thought, I, I think I know why I'm struggling because, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, I think... I think we're falling into um, the trap of stereotypes by even describing what brave feminine leadership looks like. Yeah. I think um, I have advice for women on, um, you know, how they can be braver and, you know, lead, but I think we will be helped more by um, concentrating on, you know, what, what can great leadership look like in these circumstances? And let's have a have um, descriptions of leadership that aren't gendered, that are just about the great leadership and brave leadership in the circumstances. Having said that, my advice to women who aspire to leadership, and of course, we all end up being leaders in, in one way or another, um, really comes back to, um, yes, we can't be blind to the need to adapt to the context in which we're working. If the adaptation needs to go too far where there's a clash of values, then leave because it's not right. But equally, um, don't adapt so much that you've lost who you are 
um, and, and what are the things that make you a tremendous leader? Um, because I am at the stage where, um, and we've come full circle, where I think um, we can't keep on adapting because the goalposts are going to be continually moved because those with the privilege of already being in leadership naturally as human beings aren't going to um, make that easy to get in. So you'll keep adapting and the goalposts will, will be moving. I think mm -hmm. it's a matter of find your path and what works that you can see work with your own team and your own your own business and keep trudging along. I love that. I love that answer. Um, you know, I think we all sort of look to a day where this isn't gendered and we aren't having that conversation. And so, you know, I think I think that is a, a perfect answer. So I really love it. Um, I want to thank you so, so much for sharing, you know, your thoughts and your journey and your wisdom um, with us today, Meredith. I also uh, should let the viewers know that, uh, you know, this uh, interview series is, um, uh, is experimentation and fun and new for me. And Meredith yesterday was incredibly lucky to have a wonderful conversation that I didn't record. So... <laughs> And it was a completely different conversation, totally wasn't it? Totally different, totally different. <laughs> and no one, no one will ever get to see that. And uh, so I had my own example yesterday of brave leadership where upon realising that I was absolutely dying, oh, I had 15 minutes to pull myself together because I had the next interview lined up. And uh, I just thought, come on, girl, get over yourself, move on. So it was a mindset shift at speed, but your generosity in agreeing to, to reschedule and to have what I think has been a terrific conversation is so appreciated, Meredith. Well, Melissa, I think you just showed in that uh, everything that enabled you to grow the fabulous company that you grew as a CEO, where you forged your own way and didn't allow the setbacks that were thrown at you to steer you off course. You deviated and, uh, you know, adapted, but you set yourself on and your business on a course and achieved such enormous success. And so, um, yes, this was a, just a small example and way less than um, the than other things you've overcome. But, um, you know, it enables us to shrug some things off and have perspective. You know? Keep moving. Keep Keep moving. Moving. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.